This past Monday, a guy named Dan Curry got into his car to drive across the country from the East Coast to California alone. And to pass the time, he brought along 16 hours of Spanish language lessons on CD. I reached him in his car on Wednesday. So I have some questions for you. Okay. ¿Dónde está usted? Oh, God. Um, I, I know what that means. What's it mean? Donde está you? Uh, it means, where are you? Uh, uh, when I reached Dan, the answer was Odessa, Texas. He was just outside Odessa, Texas. It was actually kind of a big moment for him. After 14 hours of listening and practicing Spanish out loud with his CDs, he had just tried out his Spanish for the very first time with a person, an actual person, a Spanish-speaking person. He was ordering lunch. Well, I, I pulled up to a place, and it's a little stand, and uh, they had a little drive-in, drive-through area. So I I went and ordered uh, two pollas, uh, pollas uh, tacos in un... It, I did it all in, on Espanol uh, in un carne asada. And it should have been about 4 or $5. Uh, but the girl, she was bilingual, like kind of rolled her eyes when I was talking. She said something to me in, in Spanish, and I said, oh, see, 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 you know. And I ended up buying $26 worth of stuff. Instead of getting two <laughs> chicken tacos, I got I got eight. The, the, the carne asada, what I got was a big vat of it. It was about $19, $19 in all these shells. And I, 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 I was too embarrassed, so I, I bought them. Uh, I said, uh, quiero, uh, uh, quiero caliente, and I didn't know the word for sauce. I haven't learned the word sauce yet, so I said sauce, and she switched to English at that point. Wait, 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 the word for salsa is salsa. Haven't you heard the word salsa? Salsa, yeah. Oh, salsa means sauce? (laughs) I thought salsa meant salsa. I'm scared. I gotcha. Look, put your feet on the pillow, I gotcha. Don't let go. Sunday in suburban New Jersey, eight-year-old Ruby Melman went out with her mom and dad to try. This was her second attempt to learn to ride a bike. Her dad ran along beside her, holding the handlebars. Keep going, pedal, pedal. Oh, Ruby, you got to pedal. Why are you stopping? Because it's scary. It took about a half an hour for her to get it. Good. You got to pedal, okay? Let go. You're not pedaling now. And keep your eyes up, Ruby. Look forward. Look ahead. Good, 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 good. There you go. Good Good. job. Pedal, pedal, pedal. (laughs) You got it. Keep going. Keep going. (sighs) Did you do it? Yes. That was really good, Ruby. Okay, let's try it again. So I'm going to ride around the corner. So this is the first time you're getting on a bike since when? This is the first time. Oh, in almost four years. Three and a half, four years. See if I can. Saturday, on the north side of Chicago, my friend Bo O'Reilly, age 56, was getting on a bike again for the first time since he had both his knees replaced. All right, here we go. Here we go. All right, both legs are going. Yes. And it's moving. It feels okay. How's your knees? They hurt. Yeah. What? I have to say, we are kind of a sight. Bo with his huge shock of gray hair. Okay. Me trotting along beside him with the microphone. 
And then behind us, Bo's girlfriend Judith chasing after us down the sidewalk with his cane. Um, but that feels okay. A little winded. A little, a little breathing. Feeling it. But feels all right. At Ground Zero this week, on Thursday, President Obama laid a wreath. A woman named Theodosia Alexander was out on the sidewalk. She'd worked as a temp in the Twin Towers all through the 80s and 90s. Knew tons of people who'd worked there. Since 9-11, she's generally avoided Lower Manhattan because of that. But she came down on Thursday, hoping it would feel different now that Osama bin Laden was dead. Um, It's like a relief that um, he's finally gone. You know, it's gone, no more. Maybe, you know, um, it's over. Maybe I won't have dreams about it. You know, well, I feel better right now. (laughs) I feel great. I feel like they got him. They got him. They got him. That same day, Thursday, at the hospital that U.S. forces set up at Bagram Air Base to deal with U.S. casualties in Afghanistan, there was no question that we are, of course, a nation that is still at war. Dr. Wade Gordon, one of three orthopedic surgeons there, says that it's been pretty steady the last six months, including this week, with Osama bin Laden gone. This week has been this week has been pretty busy. We uh, have been averaging probably between eight and twelve new trauma patients each day. And, and so, what kinds of injuries are those? Uh, well, <clears throat> sadly, a large percentage of them are amputations uh, you know, from blast injuries from explosions. Um, and there's fair fair number of gunshot wounds as well. I saw a quote from a soldier, I think it was in the New York Times, who, who was in Afghanistan and said, okay, can I go home now? And, and I'm wondering if, if you're hearing any of that. Uh, yeah, I, well, there's, I think there's a lot of kind of tongue-in-cheek joking about that. Um, I mean, yes, it's, yes, it's nice after, after 10 years. But, I, you know, I, I guess, I guess I, I'm not certain really how much that's going to impact the reality of what we're doing over here, of day-to-day putting guys back together again here. So much has happened this week. What else? In the Grand Canyon on Wednesday, high school freshmen were on a class trip. This is Lauren, and we're walking down a trail to go to the Grand Canyon right now. I know you wouldn't push anybody over the edge. But just don't even pretend to do it, okay? It's something we want to avoid, okay? Sunday, in a bar in New York City, patrons raised their glasses in remembrance of the bartender who ran the joint and lived upstairs till he was 90, Jack Loftus. Here, here, to Jack. Cheers. This is a neighborhood where guys drank a lot and got into fights. Jack was this six-foot-three fatherly figure who kept things calm. This guy, Tommy Pryor, said his own dad was a big drinker who Jack knew how to keep in line. I love Jack because I saw him love my father, respect him, take care of him when my father wasn't on his best behavior. And I felt I could trust Jack to help me control my father. I'm Ira Glass. Every week on our show, of course, we choose a theme and bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. And today we are trying something we have never tried before. The theme this week is This Week. Everything you're going to hear this hour has happened in the last seven days. We wanted big things and small things. 
the most important things happening in the country and the most important things happening to people far from Washington, D.C., far from the network news cameras, a portrait of seven days in the life of our country. From WBEZ Chicago, it's a special edition of This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. Seven days and 60 minutes. Stay with us. So we were all worried planning this week's show, coming into the week with no tape gathered at all. We worried, like, okay, what if there is no news? What if nothing interesting happens? And then Sunday night, there was a small bit of news. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. That's President Obama, of course, Sunday night. One of our producers, Sarah Koenig, lives in a college town, State College, Pennsylvania, where she heard the noise of students uh, shouting and blowing horns and what sounded like firecrackers on Sunday night. And since she wasn't watching TV, she had no idea what this was about. She thought maybe they'd won a big game or something. She actually called the cops, who also at that point had no idea what it was about. And all week she kept thinking about the hugeness of the students' reaction. When I heard Monday morning about Osama bin Laden, my reaction was, oh, Wow. At about that decibel. The difference between that and this. This is what was happening about three blocks away when I called the cops on Sunday. Thousands, maybe 5,000 or 6,000 Penn State students massed on Beaver Avenue. You've probably seen the pictures or read the accounts by now. Young people letting loose all over the country. Here there was all kinds of patriotic singing. Someone lit a small fire and kids were jumping over it. Guy dressed like Captain America was body surfing the crowd. Oh my God! And by the end of the week, there had been a bunch of stories in the papers about these September 11th kids, the so-called millennials, young, loyal Americans for whom Osama bin Laden was the boogeyman. They're Voldemort. But I still didn't quite get it. The taking to the streets, all the revelry. And I know I'm not 20 years old, and I like to go to bed around 11.30 instead of putting on my superhero outfit. But still, the difference between their reaction and that of everyone I know over 30, that difference is a gulf. So I asked some of the kids who were there that night, where did this outpouring of feeling come from? Why did they take this news so personally? I'm just going to play you the tape from the interview that finally helped me understand it. The girl speaking is Lexi Belkufine. She's a junior. She's 20 years old, editor of the school's daily newspaper. She's got a poster of Dave Matthews above her bed. And what she explained to me is that her fear after September 11th wasn't some abstraction. It was real and lasting. I distinctly remember being very afraid for a very long time. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I definitely was. I I guess it was just a realization of how quickly everything could be ripped out from under you. That these huge catastrophic things can happen. That was, it was really frightening. Um, After September 11th, I wouldn't even look at a plane, basically. You know, it was, I live, um, I'm 10 minutes from the Pittsburgh International Airport. So I can watch, uh, we watch the planes go right into the airport. Um, And it just gave me this incredibly uneasy fear of, um, of planes of flying and you know it's silly but I was 11 and didn't understand it and um, I needed something to be afraid of so I I chose flying (laughs) 
I, you know, I, I think that you could probably even say that that feeling that being 11 and not understanding and being scared and confused and frightened, um, you know, is why everyone was so excited Sunday night. Because we all kind of carried that fear with us. We definitely, we must have. Because if not, then I don't think Sunday night would have happened. So I think that this moment um, wasn't necessarily an end point, but was the closest thing that we had felt. It was this big indicator that um, there could be an end. Oh, right. Because if you're you, and like most of your cognizant life has been like different versions of the same situation, which is that we are at war with this sort of like shadowy network. I could totally see how it feels like it's never going to end. That's exactly how it feels. Um, it was actually, it's kind of neat for me. My uh, little sister, my mom was pregnant with her when, uh, on September 11th. She was seven months pregnant, I think. And now, you know, she's she's in third grade. And she's, and so it was, I, I don't know, I really, the past couple of days have been thinking about her a lot. And um, I'm almost really excited for her because she she doesn't know about any of this. You know, she doesn't understand any of this. And for me, at least, it was this this moment, like, this moment that I realized that, you know, maybe Chloe won't have to have the same confusing um, years as a 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old. Did you feel like, well, maybe she never has to know now? Exactly. And that was a really cool feeling for me. Did you even know before Sunday night that you were waiting for an end point? Do you know what I'm saying? Like before the feeling came, did you even know like, oh, this is the feeling I've wanted to have all this time? It's really interesting because I don't think that I had. Um, I don't know that I necessarily felt the way that I did until, you know, I'm watching 6,000 of my peers in the streets celebrating. and um, But I had no idea. When I'd asked another student why he and his friends cared so much about what happened Sunday, since they were just little kids when September 11th happened, it didn't happen to them. He shot back, no, it didn't happen to you guys. It happened to us. Sarah Koenig in State College, Pennsylvania. In Egypt on Monday, the day after President Obama announced Osama bin Laden was killed, out on the street, it was kind of a non-event. No demonstrations. Yes, the Muslim Brotherhood issued a statement. Yes, obviously people talked about the news. But that was it. It was a normal work day. Crazy traffic, a lot of smoking, everybody glued to their cell phones. And for all of us wondering, what does the death of Osama bin Laden mean for the Mideast? This was the reaction in the most influential, most populous Arab country in the world. A fourth of all Arabs live in Egypt. Our producer Nancy Updike went by Tahrir Square in the afternoon. If anyone in Egypt wanted to mark Osama bin Laden's death publicly or spark a national conversation about it, Tahrir Square would be the place. But the only activity I saw there on the day of the announcement was a man taking a nap on the grass. In Cairo, the conversation is not about bin Laden. It's about something completely different. From the moment I got here, I was hearing the same thing over and over. I'd love to talk, but I'm on my way to a meeting. Or... I'm in a meeting. Can I call you back? These weren't work meetings. 
They're the meetings of 82 million people deciding what their country will be. If Egypt had a national sound right now, it would be the sound of chairs scraping into a circle. Or maybe the sound right after that. (laughs) Arguing. This man is saying, why, 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 why? He's one of about 15 people in a room forming a new political party. They're figuring out what the party stands for and how it should present itself right now in front of me. They've got a name for the party, the Egyptian Social Democratic Party. But what does that mean exactly? The man shouting, why, is responding to someone else who is saying, we're not liberals, we're not calling ourselves liberals. What's wrong with liberalism, the why man wants to know. Liberalism has a taint now, the other guy says. Some people are equating liberal parties with infidels. I have nothing against liberalism, he adds. I am a liberal. And wait, how are we different from other free market parties, someone else asks. A man sitting behind the one desk in the room clarifies. We're somewhere between socialism and liberalism. Free market, but more like France or Germany than America. I spent the week going to meetings. They're happening everywhere. This one is 25 men sitting on plastic chairs in a circle out on the sidewalk, lecturing each other about politics. I went to another meeting on the astroturf deck of a boat on the Nile. Two judges, three religious men, and a DJ, who I think qualifies for the title of Mr. Meeting. This is Gihad, a charming six-foot-tall DJ, music producer, and party boy, who was apolitical and, he cheerfully admits, rather debauched under Mubarak's rule. He told an interpreter and me about sleeping till 5 p.m., going to parties all night, but then he saw friends die in front of him on Tahrir Square, and now he's quit being a DJ, he's living off his savings, and he goes to meetings all day. He starts ticking off his previous 24 hours. Noon prayer, followed by a neighborhood meeting about how to deal with crime. Then on to a seminar about the pros and cons of a parliamentary republic versus a presidential republic. 8 p.m. dinner meeting with friends working on political issues. 11 p.m. meeting with other activists to nail down the agenda for a meeting the following day. Then at 2 a.m., a final meeting back in his neighborhood. Four hours sleep, woke up, picked up a friend, drove here. My interpreter and I left Mr. Meeting, got off the elevator at the sixth floor of an office building, and headed into a conference room for one last meeting that ended up being pretty mind-blowing. At first, it looked like a classic corporate gab fest. Fluorescent lit room, about 30 people sitting around a huge oval conference table with croissants and breadsticks in front of them. But this was an assembly of two very different groups, longtime enemies, in fact, sitting face-to-face to see whether, in the new Egypt, they'll still be enemies. On one side was writers, journalists, editors, left-wing Egyptians actively working to keep Egypt secular. On the other side, current and former members of the Gama Islamiya, an Egyptian Islamist organization that spent years murdering both foreign tourists and Egyptians. They went after policemen and politicians, including the president of Egypt. They were part of the plot that killed Anwar Sadat. The men sitting here have served decades in Egypt's prisons. The Gama Islamiya also targeted Egyptian intellectuals, exactly the sort of people they're now sitting across from. The Gama Islamiya started off the meeting the way they had to, by reiterating the fact that they publicly renounced violence 14 years ago, 
and they still renounce it today. No one is forcing us to say this, said Naga Ibrahim, a thin man with a long white beard, the Gama Islamiyah leader who spoke most often. He said, Mubarak is gone, we can say what we want, and we're saying the same thing today we've been saying for years, no violence. After 15 minutes of back and forth about that, one of the journalists suddenly shifted the conversation with a quiet question. What's your position on art? For years, Islamic extremists have preached a sort of cultural anorexia. No poetry, music, dance. And in this meeting, once art came up, it took over the conversation. The secularists wanted to know, what art is okay in your view? Does painting have a place in Egypt? Sculpture? How about theater? Movies? Do you believe in such a thing as Islamic art and non-Islamic art? Would you ban any art if you could? The conversation went from chilly and polite to blunt. One of the secularists, a famous novelist, Yusuf al-Qaid, said, We're not here so you can reassure us. We're here to find out what you really believe. For the next hour, the secularists and the men from the Gama Islamiyah have a surreal conversation, the kind that happens when people with profound differences do manage to speak civilly and honestly with each other. The two groups argued, quoted poetry, brought up specific Arab pop stars and their videos, and talked about the evolution of Islamic scholarship on the subject of whether it's okay to paint or sculpt a person. Short version, according to the head of Gama Islamiyah, first no, then yes, and now it's probably okay. Photography, fine. Ballet, not okay. No, there isn't Islamic literature and non-Islamic literature. Literature is literature. We like music. Well, some music. It can't be sexy. We used to sing ourselves and put on little plays when we were in prison to entertain ourselves. And we read. One of the Gama Islamiyah men said, I really like the writing of Naguib Mahfouz. Since reading him, I don't read any other novels. I read all his books when I was in prison, and I related to them. This was an olive branch of sorts. Mahfouz is Egypt's most celebrated writer, proudly secular, who was stabbed in an assassination attempt by an Islamist militant after Gama Islamiyah put him on a hit list. Later in the meeting, one of the Gama leaders, Nagah Ibrahim, said, look, we may differ with you about art, but Gama Islamiyah will not burn art, will not destroy, will not ban. I could disagree with you about literature, art, or politics. That doesn't mean I would be violent against you or attack you. No, we fight thought with thought. Maybe promising not to stab someone seems a little too basic to be a bragging point. But in this conversation, it was part of a bigger statement by the Gama Islamiyah. We want to be part of the real Egypt, not a fantasy that we try to create by killing people. The Gama Islamiyah is in this meeting because it was the first violent Islamist group to not only renounce violence, but also publicly apologize and say what they did was wrong. Their leadership then spent years writing a detailed, multi-volume refutation of their former beliefs, including a direct challenge to al-Qaeda's argument that America is a nation of infidels who deserve to be killed. Gama Islamiyah said, no, that's not true. And they quoted the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, guaranteeing freedom of religion in their rebuttal. All of which brings me to Osama bin Laden. Egyptian thinkers provided the inspiration for al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda's modern ideological underpinnings 
are mostly from Egyptian Islamist writers, especially Sayyid Qutb. Bin Laden's second-in-command, Ayman al-Zawahri, is Egyptian, and he started reading Qutb as a teenager. One of Bin Laden's professors at university was Qutb's brother. The modern phenomenon of violent political Islam has its roots in Egypt, and in terms of ideology and some key members, so does al-Qaeda. But what does that mean for Egypt today? I had a guess, and I ran it by the leader of Gama Islamiyah, Sheikh Karam Zudi, the day after the meeting at his home. It seems to me that Ayman Zawahri and, and, and Bin Laden and, and al-Qaeda, they're following ideas that came from Egypt 50 years ago, and Egypt itself has moved on. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, these are the ideas of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Egypt has overcome that, has uh, gone through other phases. Like I said, the youth on Tahrir, they brought down a whole regime just with the strength of the word and uh, maybe a stone. Do you ever worry that, that it could come back in, in Egypt, violence in the name of Islam? Uh, I feel it won't come back, God willing. Egyptians right now are in love with Egypt. Egypt is what they want to talk about, not bin Laden. And that includes groups like the Gama Islamiyah that used to have a similar ideology. The Gama Islamiyah leaders are doing the same thing other Egyptians are doing sitting down at tables with croissants and breadsticks and talking about the future of their country. Nancy Updike in Cairo. Here in the United States this week, despite the president calling for a moment of unity, democracy still seems to mean people at each other's throats. Take this incident in Arizona. This was not big news at all. The Tucson Unified School District is considering something that you wouldn't think from the outside would be something that people could get quite this mad about. The issue is whether the Mexican-American Studies program in high school will be turned from a core credit to an elective. That's it. People who oppose that change say that if it's going to be an elective, then the many at-risk kids who do well in that course, whose GPAs are helped by that course, who basically are the target population for that course, they will never take the course. So the course will miss its target population. So, Monday, this week, school board's going to discuss this, and this middle school teacher named Sarah Bromer from his charter school goes to the school board meeting with a tape recorder, and she sits in the second row next to a seat that has this piece of paper on it that says reserved. So the meeting is packed, over 100 people in the room. And from the beginning of this meeting, there's heckling. Somebody calls the school board president bandito. There's chanting. The school board decides to hear 30 minutes of testimony from the public on this, on this issue, and then the school board wants to cut it off. But people keep standing to speak. So somebody stands up, they try to speak, they're escorted out by police. Then an older woman, a teacher at Tima Community College named Lupe Castillo, she gets up. And I will read to you the letter from Birmingham jail by Martin Luther King. This is what you need to hear. You need to understand my respect. The police move into a her, and then things go kind of crazy. The crowd starts chanting, people start standing on their chairs. At this point, the teacher who is recording this uh, thing you're hearing right now, Sarah Brummer, says, there are all these students in the room. Suddenly they show up, 
ten of them with white T-shirts and duct tape over their mouths. The police then move like a wave across the room, flushing out Lupe and lots of the protesters and most of the media, actually. Sarah, who's recording this, ducks between the chairs, and then she sees kind of down there between the chairs the woman who had moved into that seat next to her, that reserved seat, who turns out to be a petite woman in conservative professional clothes. Sarah works her way back over to her seat next to the woman. Why, why are you here tonight? Hmm? Why are you here tonight? Oh, I just came to observe democracy a little bit. <laughs> but I'm sort of, I'm feeling kind of weird. It's a little too loud, maybe. Where are you from? I'm from Iran. From Iran? Yes, so I'm not a citizen yet. Um, a permanent resident of the United States. So I just wanted to see how they talk to each other. And yeah, and this, is, this is just so crazy, man. <laughs> I mean, after 12 years in the United States, I don't think I still exactly get it. Um, because mostly when I watch things on TV, things are more kind of calm. But now it's a little too rowdy and scary, and both sides yell at each other a little bit. And, yeah. I saw you at one point kind of crawling along the floor. Right when it when it got really crazy, I saw you kind of crawling along. Were you I'm frightened? I'm the most brave person on the face of the planet, and I sort of avoid conflict usually. Yeah. Somehow, I didn't have this opinion about the United States. I didn't think this happens in the United States. I thought it happens elsewhere. Well, it hasn't gotten violent yet. No, no. Um, Hopefully, it won't. I got a headache though. It's it's, it's, it's I think I'm nervous. Yeah. At one point, the Iranian woman asked Sarah, okay, if this is a democracy, and if you can actually vote out these people if you don't like them, why is everybody being so rude? Why are they yelling so much? It's a good question. Well, coming up, when everything in your life depends on a political event that the political world ignores, that's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Each week on our show, of course, which is a theme. This week, the theme is this week. We are spending the hours hearing about large things and very small things that happened these past seven days. Is this a good time to talk? Yeah, no. If you don't mind me packing. Sunday in Oakland, California, Shirley Everett Dicko was closing up Charcoal Park, which was a very hard-to-describe combination store, African-American history museum, community center where kids hung out and came for movies and pizza Friday nights. Shirley's had the place for two years. She's been waiting for a miracle that has not come yet to help pay the rent. And she said on Sunday that lots of people driving by saw the moving trucks and people carrying stuff out and chose that moment to stop in. Now but they see all this activity and they're like, they think they're coming to shop. Right, and I'm like, I'm mo- I'm leaving now. No, I've been meaning to come here. I said, Well, that's part of the problem. I hear everybody <laughs> keeps saying you were going to come here. You never did. This looked like such a nice store. <laughs> I kept meaning to stop in. Yeah, we were meaning to. I drive by it all the time. Now you come with the day I'm packing up to leave. So that, yeah, we've had a lot of that. Does that actually closet creep you out? Yeah, actually, it really does, and the other one doesn't look like it. Yeah, it looks like someone hung themselves in there. On the other side of the country, on Saturday, it was moving day for Gabe and Kevin, boyfriends moving in together. Neither of them had ever done this, had a boyfriend and moved in with him, ever. Yeah, I feel like I've always seen friends do this. Yeah. 
And it was always like, oh, I don't know if this will ever happen for me or if I'll ever have that experience right. or anything. So now that I am, I'm like, oh. Well, today is Wednesday. And later this evening, there's an Elton John concert in the Cross, Wisconsin. That my girlfriend, Roz, and I will be attending with my parents, my brother and sister, and possibly my pastor. Eric and Roz are 21 and 23 in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. And it is at this at this concert where we intend to tell my parents that we plan on moving in together. And what do you think the reaction is going to be? I'm not really optimistic about it, I guess. They're a very Christian couple of people whom I love, I really love, but... Uh, previously, he's uh, made mention to them this could be a possibility in the future, and what his mother's reaction was, was that I believe the words were, God is not the only one judging you. Is that correct, Eric? <laughs> so they'd been prepping. Eric made a list of talking points, what he figured his parents would say, how he would respond. And on Thursday, the day after the concert, I checked in with him again to see how it went. Roz uh, said that it was hard to enjoy Elton John. She was so stressed out about this conversation they were going to have, which unfortunately they did not start until midnight. That wasn't the original plan, till midnight in his parents' house, boarding the road to return to Stevens Point. We were standing in the kitchen, and his mom and dad were just like thanking me for coming, and they were so happy that I was able to experience the show with their family. And I'm just like, my stomach's in knots. And his mother is such a gracious woman. And here she's like, oh, do you guys need anything for the trip? Some food? She's packing up like tons of food for us. And she's like, let me make you a sandwich. And <laughs> I'm thinking, you're going to want to retract those statements once I tell you yeah. I'm going to be living with your son. So they finally broke the news. They wanted to move in together. They each gave a little talk about why and waited. Eric's mom just said, Okay. <laughs> and she just kind of paused. And her response was, well, you're both adults. And we we see. She didn't really say, like, we understand or we accept that. But she's like, we see. <laughs> so, Eric, it seems like this went very, very differently than you thought it would. It seems like your, your mom was lovely. Yeah, she really was. She My dad really was all right, was. too. But during our interview, Eric's mom left him a long voicemail that he discovered when he got out of the studio. It is not over. His mom thinks they're rushing into it. It could ruin their relationship. June 1st, moving day, is coming up very, very soon. On Monday of this week in South Portland, Maine, the two grave diggers at the Mount Pleasant Cemetery, Eugene Rand and Bill True, they're also best friends, by the way, held a work stoppage and then ended the work stoppage. That's what you're hearing right now. The work stoppage was to protest the fact that the 137-year-old cemetery was finally going to modernize. They were going to finally buy a machine to dig graves, a backhoe, to replace one of the two guys. And on Monday, the cemetery's president met with the two guys and told them that he decided to keep them both till the end of June, and then he would decide about the backhoe. Satisfied, they went back to digging. Bill says that the whole problem is this new manager that the cemetery has brought in. I enjoy working here. I like doing this. Uh, just, you know, that dude over there, he's got to go. <laughs> 
he just needs to change his attitude a little bit, you know. So, so a little respect to the guys that do actually do the work here, and I guess not treat us like a couple peons that don't know anything. And but yeah, I really hope things work out. They could take all day to dig a grave by hand. They hit rocks. It's hard to keep the sides straight and square. It's hard work. And here's something that the reporter who talked to these guys, Clay Bolton, learned that I had no idea about. That old cliche about six feet under? Never. Never. <laughs> Even in the old days, I guess. I, I maybe, that, maybe they went six feet under. No. Wait, so if it's not six feet under, how deep do you guys get? Four, Four feet. Just below the frost line. Just below the frost line, yeah. So average four feet. No one's ever been buried six That's feet. That's an old cliche. It really is. That's no <laughs> saying, really. The first foot's real easy, Eugene says. The second foot gets tough. Your third foot's killing. The fourth foot, you're ready to quit. And the bottom, squaring off the bottom, that can be half a day by itself, he says. You really didn't see it in the headlines, but... All this week, people across the South were still dealing with the aftermath of last week's tornadoes. That's not over, not even close. Official estimates are that there were at least 300 tornadoes. At least 329 people have died across seven states, according to the Associated Press. And a week in, you would think that there would be this agreed-on set of facts. Not so. David Kestenbaum learned this down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. It's understandable that after a monster tornado churns through your town, picking up cars and chewing up houses... Even a week later, there's going to be some new piece of unsettling news. We started getting some calls that a um, lake, it's actually kind of a pond in a development housing, older neighborhood, uh, that had been largely destroyed, that they had drained it and found five bodies in the bottom of the lake. This is Doug Ray, editor of the local paper, the Tuscaloosa News. The thing about the bodies in the lake story, though, just wasn't true. Neither were the others. The first rumors we started hearing were Sunday afternoon. One rumor that the former mayor had been killed, not true. In fact, he'd stopped by the newspaper in person. Another, that the hospital morgue had 150 bodies in it, also not true. It only holds six. Wait, do y'all want to go through? I made a list. This week, Doug started a new beat, the rumors beat, and he put Stephanie Taylor on it, who started making a list. The mayor has allegedly ordered all cops and firefighters to shoot every dog they come across. Um... This is a really grim rumor that we've heard is that there were several children in the Chuck E. Cheese, it's a pizza place with um, games and stuff, um, that were killed and were not pulled out. And I know for a fact that wasn't the case because I was, that's where I went. I was out there five minutes after it happened. And there was nobody in that building at the time. I don't even think they were open. Um, and there's a few others that I need to, to put on the list. It's it's wild. It's gotten out of control at this point. Down here right now, it's hard to say what's a crazy rumor and what's a tip worth following up on. Because a friggin' tornado tore through town. Everything seems crazy. It's like, if that can happen, who knows what's true? Stephanie had two stories on the front page the day I visited. One incredible one about a couple, Amy Hall and Keith Matthews. I went to visit them at a shelter. Amy says when the tornado hit, she was at home talking to Keith on the phone, who's telling her, look out, I think the tornado is headed your way. And I didn't take him serious at all. Then my power went out. So I'm like, okay. He said, well, just look outside and see, do you see it? And I looked outside, and it was right in the street. 
in front of the house. The tornado was. The tornado was. And it seemed like it was just sitting there waiting to see, you know, for me to open the door to say, okay, well, you know I'm here, so I'm going to destroy your stuff. That's how I was just sitting there turning. So I closed the door. I locked the door like it was that was going to stop it. And I grabbed Kristen, my 10-month-old, off the couch. And as soon as I was running through the little hallway to get to the bedroom where the kids were, the house just came up. It just rose up in the air. The tornado lifted the house with her and her three kids in it. And we were like, we were floating. Like, we couldn't move. We were just floating. What was it like being in the house when it's in the air? It was like a movie, something you'll see on a movie. We were like floating like astronauts. And I was holding Kristen, and I was still on my phone with Keith, so he could hear everything. I just heard a bunch of racket and stuff going everywhere, and phone came disconnected, and I just tried to get to him as fast as I could. We was just shifting wherever the wind blew us, that's where we were going. And it it just slammed us. We was a block and a half over from where our house actually was when we got out. The tornado picked the house up and moved it a block and a half? Yes, it moved us a block and a half. Everyone survived. Her littlest son was on his mattress and slept through the whole thing. A relief worker told me she met a kid who said, I flew in the sky like paper. So when you hear something like five bodies, 36 bodies found at the bottom of the lake, your response isn't no way. It's how awful. Here's Stephanie with the newspaper. I believed a few of them at first. I even wrote in a story that um, a man had been killed in a tobacco convenience store and people were walking over his body to get cigarettes and soft drinks and things. Because when I was out on the street, I heard that from at least four people, and one was an official person, and he was repeating this as if it it was truth. And I came back here, and I checked with my boss, and he said, go with it, and I wrote it. And the more I've thought about it, the more unlikely it seems. But on the first day, when there was so much pandemonium and so much information coming from everywhere, it seemed like something that could have happened and probably did happen to me. And the longer I've had to stew on it, the I don't think that it did, but... Um, a, a lot of these seem to be also about sort of um, about the bodies. It's mm-hmm. like people, like there was a house there that's not there, and where are the people? You know, it's like it's kind of that question because you don't always get the body, right? It's sort of like where where did the people go? Where did the house go? Where did life go? You're right, and I think a lot of people have called us to ask about the um, whether there were 36 bodies in the bottom of this lake. Um, and they, they argue with us when we tell them, no, that's, that's not happened. They did not drain the lake. We've seen it. It's still there. There's still water in the lake. The mayor told us they did not drain the lake. And they argue and say they did. They did drain the lake, and they did find these bodies in there. And then, I mean, what do you say back to that? They, it seems like they want to believe it in a way. Um, maybe Maybe because that would kind of resolve where these people are rather than not knowing where they are. I, I don't know. I don't know what makes people want to believe it. It's just... I don't know. One thing, I get home and I'll turn on the television and turn on my computer and have it in my lap and just read this stuff all day long. And 
in the car on the way home. I'm listening to the radio station, and they, they've been going constantly, 24 hours a day since this happened. People are calling in, we need these items, that kind of stuff, and I can't seem to turn it off, and, and maybe I should. But I think a lot of people are like me, and that might be where a lot of these stories are, are coming up, just because it's just information overload. It's all anybody has been talking about or thinking about or doing for the past week. I went to see the lake. It hadn't been drained. The houses around it were gone or badly damaged. The tornado had stripped the trees. They looked like giant sticks stuck in the ground. David Kestenbaum is part of our Planet Money team. All the songs uh, that we're featuring in today's show, by the way, were released this week. This one is by an Alabama rap group, G-Side, featuring Chris Lee, about the tornado. Thursday night of this week, the first Republican presidential primary debate was held in Greenville, South Carolina. Most of the uh, political world treated it as a joke. The candidates with the best poll numbers skipped it. No Mitt Romney, no Mike Huckabee, not even Donald Trump. One Republican called the debate a beauty contest where everybody is ugly. But there's another way to look at this debate for the few fringe candidates who did show up. This was their one big moment to get noticed. Robert Smith traveled down to Greenville, South Carolina to follow them through the experience. There's a political rule that applies to even the most minor candidates. Never admit you're losing. No matter how badly you're doing in the polls, you have to pretend that you're one of the big dogs. And that's why it was sort of amazing for me to hear a guy named Herman Cain admit last week that he really, really needed this debate. I think that this first debate could potentially move me to what they call uh, top tier. Okay? There's still a lot of people who don't know who Herman Cain is. So my goal after that first debate is for people to be going, who is this guy? Herman Cain is the pizza man. He was the CEO of Godfather's Pizza, and he's never been elected to anything. Cain's poll numbers are mostly non-existent, and by that, I mean not there at all. Most of the pollsters don't even ask about him. But on the morning of the Republican debate, he was touring Greenville, South Carolina, breaking another rule of politics. Don't set the expectations too high. I am here playing to win. And you're willing to say it. And I'm willing to say it. And I want my ideas to cut through all of the political clutter. That's what my goal is tonight. For Kane, this isn't just bluster, because he actually has done this before. He had a moment when he did cut through the political clutter, when he took on the president of the United States, and he won. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And I would first like to commend you on making, national, making health care a national priority. 
It was 1994, and President Clinton was holding a series of televised town hall meetings about his new plan that would require businesses to provide health insurance. Kane was picked for the audience because he ran Godfathers. I remember standing up, and that's when they came to me. Mr. President, my question is quite simply, if I'm forced to do this, what will I tell those people whose jobs I will have to eliminate? Well, wait, let's ask, uh, let's, let's talk a minute about what you would have to do. If you could design a training program for participating in a presidential debate, this is what it would look like. Tussling for eight minutes, back and forth with Bill Clinton. What followed was perhaps the most complicated mathematical discussion that's ever been broadcast on primetime. Kane and Clinton were arguing payroll numbers, profit percentages. And the whole time Kane could feel these TV cameras. So I knew that millions of people would be watching me for the very first time in my life. That was probably the most nervous I had ever been. Okay, first of all, Mr. President, with all due respect, your calculation on what the impact would do, uh, quite honestly, is incorrect. After a few more minutes of this, President Clinton was ready to move on. Let me ask you a favor. Would you send to me personally your calculations? Even 17 years later, this moment has never faded for Kane. The most animated he gets in our interview is when he talks about the morning after Clinton. His wife came to him while he was in the shower. Doom, 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 doom. Herman, you on CNN and every channel. I said, what did I do? I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> I came out, and it was the lead story. Ted Koppel that night summarized it. Last night in Omaha, Nebraska, the pizza man from Omaha stomped President Clinton concerning his health care plan. I was shocked. And apparently hooked. Kane started traveling the country giving motivational speeches. He wrote books with titles like CEO of Self, all about how he became a success in fast food and brought down the president's health care plan. Herman Kane had tasted glory. And now in his first presidential debate, he wanted more. Herman Kane on every channel. Every channel, Herman Kane. Good evening, I'm Brett Baer. Tonight's first Republican presidential debate is being sponsored by Fox News and the Republican Party of South Carolina. And 17 years later, Kane was back in a live televised debate. Up on stage with politicians like Congressman Ron Paul and former Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty. The debate started with foreign policy, and Kane struggled to come up with the answers. One of the things that I've always prided myself on is making an informed decision based upon knowing all of the facts. And at this point, I don't know all of the facts, but that's the process that I would use. We talked before the debate about his strategy. He told me how he had written out some good lines, was planning to get some jokes in. But up on stage, you could see him making the rookie mistake of actually answering the questions. He wasn't getting that big moment back, even though he tried the same move on the moderator that he tried on Clinton. Well, Chris, with all due respect, your experts are dead wrong because I have studied the fair tax for a long time. First of all... But then his answer sort of droned on after that. It turns out that challenging a reporter isn't the same as challenging a president. And it occurred to me as I watched him that I had completely misunderstood that moment in 1994. Herman Cain didn't take down President Clinton in his health care plan. President Clinton elevated Herman Cain. Being on stage with four other also-rans wasn't helping, and this time he was going to have to do it himself. Then it happened. The moderator finally near the end asked a question made for a motivational speaker like Cain. You have an impressive personal history, sir, but why do you have any belief that you stand a chance to win this nomination, let alone the presidency? A couple of reasons. Most of the people that are in elective office in Washington, D.C., they have held public office before. How's that working for you? Bingo. It turned out to be the catchphrase of the debate. 
Never mind that he's been trying it out for months. He tried it on us last week. How's that working out for you? Apparently quite well. After the debate, Fox News did a focus group. Half the people said Kane won. His staff excitedly told me that after the quip, Kane was the 15th most trending topic on Twitter. But Herman Kane seemed to know that this didn't have quite the same electricity as it did back in 1994. I wouldn't call it a breakthrough, but I would call it a heightened awareness of this guy named Herman Kane. And I hope the takeaway that people had was we need to take a closer look at this guy. The morning after the debate, I flipped the channels, and Kane was right to be wary of claiming victory. Most news outlets didn't even mention the debate happened. Robert Smith is another member of our Planet Money team. Planet Money is a co-production of our show and NPR News. You can get their free podcast at npr.org slash money. Here's somebody else who had a big week this week. My name is Laura Huckey. I just graduated yesterday at 2 o'clock. And I don't know what I want to do, and I don't really know where I want to move. So that poses a problem. After graduating from the University of Florida in Gainesville on Saturday, Laura got into her car to make a trip that she really hadn't hoped she would be making four years ago. She didn't have a job, so she was moving back in with her parents. 1.6 million people will graduate from college over the next month into what is still a very tough economy. This week also happens to be the one-year anniversary of when her own intern, Eric Menel, graduated from college and made the exact same trip to move back in with his parents, jobless. So we sent him along for the ride with Laura. When I first showed up at Laura's apartment, she was visibly freaked out. She had just called her mom and dad, almost crying. I was packing, and my trunk was almost full, so I guess I was, like, trying to fit something in there, and I was, like, pushing it in, I had to put my keys down, and I guess I put them in the trunk because I wasn't thinking very straight. So I just closed it, and I'm like, yes, it fit, and then I realized my keys are in there. <laughs> I was just like, of course this would happen when I'm trying to leave, the day I'm trying to leave, you know? She'd packed mostly the night before, so 30 minutes later, <laughs> when the locksmith showed up... We were on the road. When Laura started college, she wanted to be a book editor. She figured she'd live in New York, or maybe L.A., anywhere but Coral Springs, Florida, where she grew up. But by her senior year, Laura just couldn't get it together to apply for any jobs. She was overwhelmed by all the possibilities. She had no idea where to start, and she battles with the sometimes crippling lack of self-confidence. No, I definitely feel like a huge sense of helplessness or something that's really overwhelming and like I'm already like in that like pit of negativity of like I don't have any experience. I'm never gonna get a good job that I want. Like how am I gonna get a job? I have nothing on my resume. Like all my friends at internships and like they're getting like all these amazing jobs and they're moving away and like what's my plan after college? I'm moving back home. Like I'm a failure, you know? <laughs> I don't wanna be one of those like thirty year old people living in their parents' house. Like that's just a complete failure. I feel like you know, like, like, my whole life, people have just told me how smart I am and, like, how I'm so, like, destined for greatness. And, like, to not achieve that is just, like, unfathomable, you know? When I graduated and moved back home a year ago, I, I spent the first couple of nights sleeping on my kid sister's top bunk. I couldn't land a job. And after two weeks, then a month, then six months without any real sense of direction, it was easily the saddest and most depressed I've ever been in my life. So I felt like I knew what Laura was in for. For one thing, it changes your relationship with your parents. It's awkward. You get annoyed with them, they get annoyed with you. And Laura says she and her mom have always fought a lot, even before this. I'll, I'll, give, you an, I'll give you an example of like of the kind of the kind of stupid crap that goes on between me and my mom. 
I'm sitting at my kitchen table eating lunch, and she's sitting at her at her desk on the computer, and she's watching a tennis match. And she was saying something about it, and I said like, oh, it um, it got postponed because it was raining. And she goes, no, it got delayed. And I was like, well, isn't that the same thing? And she goes, well, no, like postponed and delayed are two totally different things. And I'm like, well, don't they mean like, don't they both mean like putting something off to a later time? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I'm like, why are you fighting it with me about what delayed and postponed is? Her dad comes out to help her unload stuff for her bedroom. Before she went to college, the room was pink, with green carpet. But while she was gone, her parents painted it the color they liked. The color of the rest of the house. Brown. Which she hates. After talking to Laura's mom, Amy, and dad, Charlie, it's clear that as much as Laura doesn't like the idea of living at home... They wouldn't call it ideal either. My expectation is she's going to come back home and expect it to be like it was before. And I don't think it should be that way. I think she's a grown-up now and she should behave as a grown-up. So I see conflict. From Laura's mom's point of view, that's the main danger here. That Laura won't respect her boundaries and priorities. That she'll act like a kid. I asked about their fights and what they remembered about the tennis argument. She considers a conflict. I didn't even remember it. You remembered it. I, my recollection was that Amy was right and Laura was wrong. Okay, in the definition of what postponed and delayed were. Uh, when they when they get into stuff like that, I stay out of it because I don't want to get in the middle of anything. I, when you get in the middle of something, you're making a mistake, especially with the two of them, because they're both right. So how could I possibly be right? Okay. Yeah, but wait, so, but there's something interesting. You said, as I remember it, Amy was right. Yes. So if I was right, why didn't you get involved and stop the argument so it didn't get unpleasant for both Laura and me? My prognosis? They're doomed. As of Monday, everyone was still getting along. By Thursday, the story was a little different. Laura's dad went into her room to pull a guitar amp out from under the bed. He had been storing it there while she was away at school. As he was walking out, he bumped into her dresser. The flat iron she uses for her hair fell on the floor. Laura gave him attitude. He got into a fight with his wife over it. As of Friday, Laura still hadn't finished unpacking. Eric Benno is our show's intern. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique Like a snowflake Distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you'd conceive. And now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery, serving something beyond me. But I. Our program is produced today by our senior producer, Julie Snyder, and Sarah Koenig, with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Jane Feltis, Lisa Pollock, Robin Simeon, Alyssa Ship. And our colleagues at Planet Money, Adam Davidson, Jess Jang, Hannah Chaffee Walt, Caitlin Kenny, and Balder Hedinson. Production help from Eric Menel. Seth Lind is our production manager. Emily Condon's our office manager. Jen Berman's filling in as our West Coast producer. Original newsy, but not too newsy sounding music for today's program by Cassettes Won't Listen. Thanks to all the people who gathered tape for this week's show. Rachel James, Clay Bolton, Sarah Bromer, Gigi Duban, Kathy Lohr. 
Thanks to Rachel Dornhelm, Dr. Benjamin Kyle Potter, David Chastine, Jorge Just, and Jessica from Cosign. Thanks also to the many, many people we talked to who pitched stories for today's program. Far too many to put on the radio. Our website, you can get our free weekly podcast, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our show by our boss, Tori Malatia, who's been walking around oh, with this new catchphrase. How's that working out for you? On our glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. RI Public Radio International